You're listening to Finding Your Genius Zone with Dirk Novell. With the help of successful individuals across industries, Dirk breaks down the unknown parts of every vocation while highlighting the importance of finding a career where you can leverage your natural skills, passions, and interests. Now here's your host, Dirk Novell. Hey everybody, this is Dirk Novell. On with me is a friend of mine, Matt Lorch. Matt, welcome. Thank you, my friend. By the way, I kind of love the music coming into it. It, it feels like ACDC's Thunderstruck. So does that mean we need to bring the thunder during the podcast? A little bit of thunder. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good plan. I It's funny that you and I come from the same rock rock era. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I think we went to the same elementary school, same Hayek. Were you at Hayek? No, so Hayek closed down before I got there and all the cool older kids like you, and I'll talk about that in just a moment, uh, who got to go to Hayek always said, we went to Odal and everybody said, so a little bit of background for for your watchers and listeners. Uh, I grew up with Dirk. We went to the same elementary school. And if I can, Dirk, for a moment, uh, you were the older kid, the super amazing athlete, and we all looked up to you. And so I had a friend in Dirk's neighborhood when Dirk would come out and play football with us. We were in awe because he was the great Dirk Novell. Uh, and then I saw you go on to high school at Eastside Catholic and be their starting quarterback. And we were like, we knew Dirk. Novelle, uh, and I was still looking up to you. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, you know, we've been friends. We've known each other for a long time, but I've always looked up for you, uh, to you for so many reasons. And now I'm seeing this poster behind you and the level of handsome in the poster. I, you look like a male model. That's editing, Matt. That's uh, <laughs> well, as, a, <laughs> as a former news anchor, I understand some airbrushing <laughs> and editing and what goes into that. That If I could only have hair like that in real life. My, my confidence would go up. And by the way, thank you for the compliments. Unfortunately, I think I peaked in sixth grade because after sixth grade, it just, <laughs> just kind of went downhill. But I remember you as well. You were always a really great guy. Um, and then you went to high school with my wife and seeing you, you know, I told you this before I hit record, but seeing you post-college and just rise in the TV world um, and just watching you, like you really like this podcast was made for people like you. You were really in your genius zone. And I remember telling my wife, I'm like, God, he's really, really good at what he does. And it's just recently I was at an auction with one of my best friends and who didn't know you. And he knew you and I were buddies. And he looked at me within like five minutes and he goes, that dude is good. And so you're just, you know, you're the kind of guy I want to have on this. And I'm really appreciate the compliments, but back at you. Um, uh, we do have a lot of history together and I'm glad we've kind of, uh, we've had opportunities to hang out and see each other over the last few years. So that's cool. Yeah. Feelings mutual. Your wife is darling. And I've known her since high school as well. You've got an incredible family. So yeah, thanks for having me on just the high level, a little bit of background. I was a TV news anchor, uh, for 26 years, uh, the last 10 of those in my hometown market, uh, of Seattle at Q13, what's now known as Fox 13. Um, it was an incredible industry. It was really, really good to me. Um, I really grew personally, professionally, uh, as an individual um, in that industry. And I loved it. it I, I really loved it for so many reasons. It took me all over the country. Um, so I went to the University of Washington, uh, where we knew each other. I think, were you a senior when I was a freshman? What year did you graduate college? I was 88 high school and then 92 yeah. at UW. Yeah, I was always looking up to you. Yeah. So you were a senior when I was a freshman. And so uh, 
when I was in, in college, I interned at King and at Cairo. So Seattle viewers, you know those stations. If anybody's watching outside the market, uh, Cairo is the CBS affiliate, King the NBC affiliate. And I, I actually, so my mom was a school teacher. Uh, my dad was a cardiologist. And what I knew from watching them is that they both loved what they did and they loved helping people. And with my mom, that was like investing in kids in a level that I was like, wow. And I would go and go to her class and observe her. And I, she just, my mom loves people. And I think that's where I get it. Like I love people. And so um, she was really invested in her students and would, would bring in their families. And, and it was, it was really special to watch her. And then my dad loved caring for patients and, and really helping them find the best possible outcomes. And so I did watch that from them and learn, like, when I think about what I want to do in life, you know, I just want to be deeply invested in whatever that is. And so uh, went to high school and a little bit of background. We grew up in Bellevue in this place called Bridal Trails. And I, I think we're always kind of a product of genetics and a product of environment. And how do you feel about growing up where we grew up? Because I got to say, like, it it was a dream place to grow up as a kid. Yeah, I I feel sorry for my, I mean, not my kid. I don't feel sorry for him, but some of my best days, years ever were just getting on my bike, getting lost in bridal trails, um, packing a lunch. Uh, you know, we would take those Folgers coffee can, make a fire and bring like hot dogs. And I don't know if you know, you turn it upside down, you do a fire underneath. And poke, <laughs> and, and so I mean like, or, you know, just what, or just going up to Seven Eleven after uh selling lemonade and, you know, buying bubble gum, but bridal trails was a dream, um, you know, safe, uh, just tons of uh, space for us kids and boys just to get crazy. And, you know, I remember, you know, with Nick, my neighbor just going up to Klinkenberg's in that big yard and just playing football or baseball or whatever. So a lot of good memories. Yeah, we'd be out there until the sun came down. You kind of knew, like you hear people say, like, oh, when the sun goes down, when the lights come on on the street, that's when it's time to go home. Um, and, you know, so Bridal Trails, Northeast Bellevue. And Bellevue back then, it wasn't what it's known as now, right? And our the region has grown up so much and become so fluent. And there's a lot of upsides of that. But, um, but it was more upper middle class, but middle class. And, you know, there weren't these mansions there like there are now. It was, it, it was a it was just a great place to grow up and, and bridal trails is a place where that has trails everywhere. So like you said, we could ride our bikes to each other's houses. And so we, you know, you didn't just have one family, you had like 10 families, right? Cause all your friends' families adopted you. So I grew up in this super supportive um, community. My parents were divorced. And so that was a little different for most of my friends. Most of my friends, their parents were still together, but I did like lean on my parents and respected the heck out of both of them and, and learned a lot from both of them when I, it came time to choose a career. So I go to UW initially I'm pre-med. And the reason I was pre-med is, you know, I watched my dad and, you know, he made a good living. He loved what he did. And so I was like, you know, I, I I think it served my dad so well. And then I started talking to some of his partners, like other people um, in his practice, and they they kind of enlightened me. And I worked there before my sophomore year to make money. Um, and there's like 20 docs in his practice. And uh, and I would ask them questions. So I was already thinking along the lines, like, what do I want to do before my sophomore year of high school? Um, and, and some of them planted the seed at that time. They're like, Matt, medicine's changing. If you're not in it for the right reasons, 
just know you've got to be in it for the right reasons. You can't just do it to make a great living and doctors made and do make a great living. You've got to be in it for the right reasons because it's changing and there's new frustrations and they were very transparent about that. Maybe even more so than my dad. Cause I think he wanted me to go into a profession. Um, so I ended up going to UW. I was pre-med for a little bit and I realized my passion wasn't there. Uh, so I, I ended up doing an internship at Cairo and I'm like, I love this. And I always loved, I love to hear like, this is your jam too, but I always loved kind of being in the center of events and being a part of big events and then sharing about it. So what I realized about TV news is you're covering events or issues and then telling stories and sharing about it. And so when I interned, I watched and I observed, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is right up my alley. Like I love seeing history as it takes place and then sharing and let people make up their own minds about it. How, how did you end up landing on the, the career that you did? Well, I will get there, but you know, I just thought of something. I did an intern when I was at UW with Cairo. Oh, you did? Yeah. It was inside business Northwest and huh. it was a, that was a the name of the show. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a TV. Um, I want to say, yeah, it was Ken Hatch. Ken Hatch was Cairo, right? Yeah. I, I remember that name. Ken was run. He was the president of Cairo. Um, yeah, I'm pretty darn sure. Uh, Channel Seven. Uh, yeah, God, I'm. I'm just saying. Anyways, yeah, I did that, and I remember I did a little stint because I was interested in the TV world. And I just, I have to tell you this before I forget it. So then they had this thing called the Wayne Cody Sports Challenge. Oh, everybody remembers Wayne Cody, who grew up in Seattle. So Wayne yeah. Cody was like the sports anchor in town, along with Tony Ventrella and some others. But he, he was the man. The dude. And so what I had to do is I qualified for it. And it's funny because like what you do, and, and we'll get to the TV anchor thing, but I'm not, don't take this the wrong way, but I think somebody could watch it and say, well, I'm really good with people and I'm good talking. But when you're on camera, it's a different thing. And I remember I was on with Steve Rabel. He was next to me and I was reading a teleprompter and I had to like give an update on the Mariners or the horse races. And I was I was so bad. And I remember they gave me the, the video and I watched it and I almost burned it. But I remember thinking, God, I'm going to kill this. I'm so I'm going to be so good at this. And then I did it and it was so hard. But I don't know if you remember that. Um, Steve. That's knew hilarious. I, yeah, Steve could tell I was struggling. So he was real good at like kind of picking me up a little bit. But um, your question was, I'm sorry, how did I get into what I got into? Yeah, like, how did you I, that, that was just kind of my process to land yeah. on where I did and decide my career path. But how did you end up uh, picking your career path? Yeah, that's a good question. I you know, my, my dad's passed away. But so but my dad was very all about money. Uh, so I grew up kind of as a kid. And not to get too deep, but like my I associated success with money. So subconsciously at a young age, you know, he would point out people that lived on the lake. And so I grew up thinking, okay, this is how I'm going to be loved by my dad is I'm going to be rich or I'm going to be good in sports. You know, sport, it was all tied together. And so for me, it was always going to be about sales. And I didn't have like uh, an affiliation or like I'm going to be a doctor or a lawyer. So I was good with people. Most people liked me. I'm an honest guy. And so I kind of just fell into sales. I um, worked at AT&T. Then I went and started a company with some guys. Were you a Sigma Chi? I was. So with Chris Maskell, Jeff Schrock, we, yeah. we started a company called Activate. And then I left them to go work for Mark Cuban. And so then that's kind of propelled me into the world of technology. And then we were bought by Yahoo. And 
And so I just kind of fell into things and there wasn't a lot of thought that went into like what would make me happy, which is kind of the why behind this podcast. But, you know, I did okay. I learned a lot. Um, and I'm a big believer. You learn a lot in life by just taking steps. But my goal with this podcast is really to get young adults and people to kind of step back a little bit and pay attention to what makes them unique, what lights them up. And I wish I would have done a little more of that. Um, the voices in my head were really my dad's voice, right, of success. And so that's how I got into what I do. And, you know, eventually I got out of technology and got into lending. And, you know, we talked, I, there's a lot of things I do that I'm interested in a lot of different things. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of just knew that I was good with people. Um, and I'm not super motivated by selling. I just think that I like talking to people and I like holding space and I'm a good listener. What was Mark Cuban like? Super cool. Um, you know, you would email him at midnight and he'd get back to you at 1205. Um, just a real cool dude. Everyone liked him, a hard worker. Uh, you know, he hired me. I didn't know, you know, it wasn't popular when, you know, he wasn't as big when he hired me. So the fact that I had a little time with him was pretty cool. Uh, but I, yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan. I mean, anyone you saw who his genius zone, which has made him so successful owner of the Mavericks on shark tank, all the goodness that we know with Mark Cuban. Yeah. He's, I don't know. I'd say grit. Yeah. He's smart, but he's gritty and he's, mm -hmm. uh, he's a bulldog, you know, like life is hard and work is hard and starting a business is hard, but he's the kind of guy that just would never quit. I'm sure you learned a lot from him. I did. I mean, it's not like him and I hung out, you know, he'd still probably remember who I was, but and did I you go down to Dallas or were you working up here remotely? I was running the Northwest for them. Uh, oh, okay. They were based in deep Ellum in Dallas. So I went down there a little bit, but um, you know, the thing about, when I mean, we're talking about careers. The thing that I didn't realize, Matt, is I just like, I love being a dad and I love being a husband and I didn't realize how important just like, you know, I fell into lending because I didn't want to miss birthdays. I didn't want to miss holidays. I wanted to wake up with my kids. I wanted to go to bed with them. I wanted yeah. to co coach them in sports. And, you know, those are the things that like, I didn't really know when I was 24, but, um, you know, it's not like, you know, I have a lot of interest, but I, I would say, you know, the, the, where we're going on this is just, it's really important. And I want you to elaborate a little bit on it, but what are the things that you really want out of life? And does your career give you those things? And so for me, just being home and present is probably number one. Yeah. Well, it sounds like your priorities are clearly in the right place when talking about like deciding a career. And you mentioned this, like, it, you know, we're looking at colleges with my daughter now and I'm and I keep saying, like, know yourself to know what you want. And the same applies to a career. It's like, know yourself. Where are your strengths? Where are your interests? And then you'll know what you want. And so kind of going back to, to my career path, just because you asked about it is, is, you know, then I do these internships and I realize, yes, like this is where I want to be. And, and, and the time I got into, because market factors play a role in, in what we decide to do and how successful we may be. You know, if you think about it, it was like, I graduated college in 95. Um, MSNBC launched in 1995, Fox News Channel launched in 1995. It was the infancy of cable news, but it was exploding. News was exploding. Interest in news was exploding. And 
opportunities uh, were never ending. And so, and, and at the time, people were still watching local news in great numbers. And so one of the things about local news that I, that I liked and that intrigued me is kind of forces you to move around the country. So when I got into it, you had to go to a small market, carry your own camera, edit your own videotape, edit your own stories. Uh, they called it one man banding. And so I interned and I had some great mentors at King, um, including Mona Locke, who be, uh, was Mona Lee. She became Mona Locke. She, she was married to uh, the governor of Washington, Gary Locke. And she said, Matt, if you don't have luck sending out your tapes, go to the Midwest. And she was a reporter at King. She said, go to the Midwest. There's a million small markets out there. So I flew out to the Midwest. I drove seven states. I'd call news directors the day before I'd be in town. I'd say, hey, I'm all the way out here from Seattle. I'm going to be driving through Quincy, Illinois tomorrow. Is there any chance you'd sit down and watch my tape with me? I'm using a pay phone because it was pre-cell phone. And uh, they say, wait, where are you from? You, you flew out here from Seattle? Yeah, I'll make time to meet with you. And it ended up giving me two job offers. I was over the moon. My first job, what did your first job pay you, Dirk? Well, you mean my first real job? Yeah, your first, well, yeah, your first real job out of college. You know, actually it was good. I think I was on a $70,000 base and all I was doing was training for six months until they found a territory. This was AT&T. So yeah. I was, I was pretty happy with 70. Seven, okay. So my first job, $14,000 dollars but i was over the moon i was like i get to work on television and i'd carry my own camera and i'd shoot like every day we had to put the uh, corn and soybean prices up on the screen so i'd stop and shoot corn and soybeans and i said like why can't i use yesterday's video and they're like oh no the weather changes people will know so anyway that was quincy illinois I spent eight months there moved to boise met my wife in boise spent like just over a year there and then got a chance to go to baltimore miami i started anchoring when i was in miami moved to boston and um in 2008 there was the downturn in the economy and advertisers stopped spending big money on on advertising and that impacted newsrooms. And so I'm in Boston at the time and I'm a, I'm a number two evening anchor. And so, and they started laying off people in the market and I'm like, wow. And some of these people had been on the air for like 30 years. These were, these were the biggest names in the market. And I'm like, if they can lay them off, I think we're all expendable. And so it was the first big dose of reality is like, okay, this thing is changing and viewership was going down and viewership was going down for a few reasons, but mostly because of how people get their news and how they get their entertainment was rapidly changing. So news right here, you know, you can get your news in two seconds on your phone, you get your forecast. So the forecast is always the biggest driver of local news. What's the weather going to be like tomorrow? And so people would turn on or turn on a newscast before these things or these things and they'd get and they'd get their forecast. Uh, and then the the other driver, uh, it, you know, was always entertainment. People would watch network programming and then just leave on the local news. And now there's so many different cable network, you know, 300 plus channels, but also OTT over the top. And so, you know, streaming services. And so people are watching when they want to watch. And so ratings were going down. And so there was market factors there. And so that was the first time I was like, I think I may want to do something else. I had been successful. I had had amazing experiences, interviewed the most interesting people and had access to really fun and, and um, engaging events. I mean, I traveled the country and, and outside the country covering hurricanes, traveled the country covering some of the biggest news stories. 
Um, and I loved it, but, but I also realized that things were changing and I think you have to always be nimble, you know, with your career because market factors do change and those can have big impacts on our success. And once you have kids, I had gotten married, have two kids, then that impacts your whole family. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about something that's really important, like the, your control, you know, there's things you don't have control over. Like you were really good at what you did. And I want to get into that a little bit too. But all of a sudden, like some things happen, like my wife and I just watched the big short again the other night about what happened in 08. And, uh, you know, if you're getting into a career, I think it for the audience, it's important to understand is how much control are you going to really have over the security of your job, right? And you as a TV anchorman, I mean, the reality is, you probably didn't have a ton of control. Is that accurate? Yeah, and we were we were seeing changes in how our contracts are structured. So we all watch, and you're a big sports fan. Yeah. So we all know how the contracts are structured in pro sports and that they're different in football, that they can cut you every year compared to baseball and basketball that like, you know, teams are saddled with these big contracts and they're guaranteed contracts. So it's we started going from like five-year guaranteed deals to now three-year deals where they have windows every year. I'm getting a little bit into the weeds, but it was indicators that things Things were changing that anchors were losing leverage so our and listen i understand this is a don't cry for me argentina like they you know these people were making amazing salaries but also that that was one factor of why i said oh i may want to consider making a career change the other factor was of how news is viewed and that was changing and so and there were a lot of reasons for that and i'm sure if you're watching you know how you feel about the news um and whether you think it's biased or not but, you know, with with cable news coming in, instead of the news always just being trying as hard as they could uh, to be fair and objective, you had cable channels that for different reasons, some of it monetary, have decided we're going to play to this audience. And it changed perceptions about news uh, that there were other factors that happen. Um, you know, there, there was a network news anchor who, you know, kind of elaborated, um, lied about his experience in the in the theater of war, was pulled from NBC Nightly News, you know who I'm talking about. That hurt our credibility. And then, you know, the kind of the fake news moniker didn't help. Now, you could agree with that. And and but I will say all the newsrooms that I worked in, we worked really hard to be object objective and check each other. Because everybody's got their own biases yeah. biases. And and you would recognize that in your coworkers, right? You'd be like, oh I think they lean left. I hear the stories they're pitching. I know the angle they're wanting to take. And we would check each other. We would bring it up and say, okay, but if we're going to get that side of the story, we need to tell this side of the story. And so we were, would work really hard, but perception in the news changed over time. And maybe that's because we weren't doing a good enough job. And I, you know, collectively as an industry, we own that, but, but, but it did start to erode you know, how I felt about the work I was doing yeah. and how I was received out into the public. So we we got to a place as a family that I said, I think I may want to get out. And if I get out, I said to my wife, who I met in Boise when I had a pit stop in Boise, where do you want to be? Because I'd love to be back in the Pacific Northwest. I love this country. We've been in some amazing places, Miami, Boston, Baltimore. But we're, I'd love to be back home in, in my hometown of Seattle. And she goes, let's do it. So we, I ended up moving back here and, I, and it took me another 10 years to leave the industry. I spent 10 years at Q13 before I left. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I loved watching you and I wasn't a guy that watched a lot of TV, but like anytime I could turn it on and see you, I mean, you were really good at 
I mean, you are really good at what you do. And I, and I want to ask, uh, I guess it's kind of a, a basic question, but, and I don't mean to change subjects here, but I, I just really want to touch on some things before I forget is what makes you, and, and you are very good at what you do. And I know you're very humble, but just being honest, what makes you good at what you do? Cause there, there's a light, there's an energy that you have that I don't see with a lot of TV anchors and it's genuine and authentic. And I guess the question is, where does that come from? Oh, I appreciate the compliment. I, I don't know. I mean, um, I always watch other people and say, wow, they're really talented. I, I think it all starts with what's the story you're trying to tell and, and really care more about content than about your delivery and people can feel authenticity, right? And so as long as you're honest, the more you can let viewers in, they really appreciate it. So I just always tried to open up and let folks in, get to know me as a person in every market I was in. I got to say, it was special coming back home because I moved all these places and like, I'm in Miami and I'm covering, you know, the heat in the finals, uh, which was super fun. And the Marlins winning a World Series. Then we go to Boston and the and the Patriots are in the uh, Super Bowl and the Red Sox. And I love that. And I love those teams. I really did. But I didn't grow up with those teams. So to be able to come home, one of the first stories I did was going out and covering like a rally for UW and interviewing the, pre the new president of the University of Washington, which is where I went to school, you went to school. And I was just like, man, I'm home and I get to cover my teams. And then I went on to, you know, um, be able to cover the Seahawks and go to two Super Bowls. And just those are experiences that I'll, that I'll never forget. And, and just interview the guys that we grew up loving. Like I got to interview Kenny Easley and Steve Large and Walter Jones, you know, three Seahawks Hall of Famers and, and many members of the current team and, you know, uh, Gary Payton. And, and, you know, those are, those are memories I'll never forget. But, but I did start to continue to have questions about my place in TV news. And I think it's a great industry and it's an essential service um, for our community. Uh, we need watchdogs. <clears throat> Newspapers provide that. Radio stations provide that. And TV news provides that all in very different manners and forms. Um, but but it's an essential service. But I just started to realize for me personally, and, and I'll get to why I started thinking about, OK, do I want to do something else and how I started finding really my passion in life, uh, which is now being a benefit auctioneer. Um, it is that, you know, so much of what we spend time doing in TV news are covering the biggest topics that affect our community. And often those are issues that divide communities. And so we're spending so much time covering the conflict and I'm looking around and I'm like, I love this place. There's so much good happening here. Can we cover more of that? And they did allow me to do it. Like I launched a franchise after fighting, fighting, fighting for it. It's called uh, Change Makers, and all I did was highlight people making their communities better, and it was the fav my favorite thing I ever did. And uh, and so I just got to go out and highlight, you know, the the person who is helping kids in their school district be their best, or has started a nonprofit um, to really lift up kids in their community. Whatever it may be, they they gave me the bandwidth and the time to do it, and 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 so that's when I started realizing like. Okay, this is what is lighting my fire. I love highlighting what works in our community and leaning into that instead of every day kind of roll, running to the people who are making the most noise on the opposite ends of the issue and giving them all the airtime. Would you say that one of the highlights, maybe I, that interview you did with the author that wrote the book on road rage, 
Do you remember that? Heck yeah, I do. So uh, background, uh, I did a story about you. And so uh, you wrote this book and I found it fascinating. And I was like, all right, uh, let's, you know, like, so what I found so fascinating is you had this like super diverse career. And then you're like, I want to write a book about driving. So go ahead. You'll do a better job than I will. Explain to our viewers about the title. First, give us the title of the book. And then if you could share with us the vision and the message of the book. See how selfish I am. I, I, I created a way. No, to no, no. You do. You were a change back. maker. We got to, we got to share your story. And, uh, and I just thought it was so cool that, that, that you found the time, uh, yeah. and the bandwidth in the middle of your busy life to, to kind of chase a personal, personal passion. Yeah. It's road rage justified. I wrote it cause I had a lot of opinions on what not to do while you're driving. Um, I don't have a lot of road rage, but I, you know, I've been angry before. So I just kind of thought, you know, there's not a book out there talking about the social etiquette of driving. And so I found an author or an artist and then I wrote it and it's just more of a, you know, it's a funny book, but I think if people read it, uh, like I was telling you before we hit record, like it's things people don't think of, like everything from how to merge to courtesy waves and just the etiquette of driving. And so you were so kind. Uh, I remember we got in my car. There was a, a woman that sat in the back seat that filmed us and we drove around and, uh, you know, that was fun. I was kidding when I brought it up, but um, you were really gracious in helping me. But, you know, I, I was just another example of just leaning into something that's different. You know, a lot of people have interests or ideas that they don't pursue. And I was proud of myself for giving it a shot. Um, it still sells occasionally, um, but, uh, you know, like the podcast, you know, I think life is about taking steps, taking action and just kind of experimenting in life. And so I've been doing that over the last decade or so. And, you know, it's been, it's, it's made me a better version of myself for sure. Just kind of getting curious. Um, but I was kidding that you, you've done no, a lot. I, of I'm glad you brought it up because it is, it's a perfect example. And I was so proud of you for doing it. And I think, I think it's so incredibly cool because so many people talk about, Oh, I've always wanted to do this thing. And it takes determination and courage to go and do it. Right. And so you found the time to write a book yep. about a topic that is super relatable. Everybody should pick up a copy because it'll make you laugh. It'll also make you think about what you do behind the wheel and what others do. Because everybody's got opinions on how people drive, right? We all do. Oh, definitely. So I do want to get into the auction world. But before we leave the TV anchor world, yeah. I want to ask, like, what what didn't you see coming, Matt? Like, what, you know, the good and I mean, maybe even touch on some of the negatives, not to um, talk negatively about your old industry. But like, if someone's really considering getting into this industry, You've been in it. You you reached a very high level. You were very good at it. What caught you by surprise? Yeah, I don't know if anything caught me by surprise because, um, you know, I didn't have my head in the sand. I, I'm kind of watching. I'm listening to the cues. I'm talking to the sales guys, you know, because uh, as much as we, it is a public service, it's, it also is a business, right? And so they need to bring in advertising revenue and transmission retransmission fees you know to keep the lights on and pay employees and so i you know i i think I, I guess where i was proud of myself is i didn't have my head in the sand about what was going on with the industry i think if you are entering that industry journalism you've got to get into it like my dad's partners in his practice told me for the right reasons right and because when we got in 
it, um, the compensation was really good. And some people went into it because they wanted to be on TV. They wanted to be famous. They wanted to make a lot of money. Cool. I got into it because I wanted to tell stories and interview really interesting people. Um, but also I'm the breadwinner. So my wife and I have two kids. And part of this is like the realities. And these are the things you don't think about when you get into an industry is, you know, you know, you said your dad said, make as much money as you can, because that allows you to do the things you want to do in life. And that's important, right? You want to be able to, to, if you if traveling is important to do those things and to be able to take care of your family in a way that's meaningful for you. And so that's a piece of it, right? And so compensation is a piece of it. And so now I'm in this industry and 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 the compensation is going down. My wife doesn't work. We have two kids and, and that includes a son who's got severe disabilities. So we have a, we have a teenage daughter who's going into her senior year and I have a 14 year old son who's in a wheelchair. He's nonverbal. He's not able to sit, stand or walk on his own. He's I'll show you a photo of him. Um, he's a super cute kid. That's Griffin. Um, beautiful, beautiful yeah, boy. thank you. And so, uh, and so, but, but, uh, he requires a full-time caretaker and thank goodness we're in a position that's, that's my wife, but that makes me the breadwinner. So I did have to think about, you know, what, what long-term this looks like on a single income. And the other thing is I talked a little bit about contracts is we're always on a hamster wheel. We're always chasing the next contract. And somebody who, you know, may not understand what you do every day in a newsroom and how you lead people and how you really work your butt off and really um, drive success for those around you and lift up others, hopefully, and, you know, doing everything could decide one, your salary and two, whether you're, you're renewed or not. And so that that's the reality of it. And so I felt like there was so much out of my control in, you know, the area of TV news that I worked in. Um, and, and I was kind of done moving. So it requires you to move around the country and I could stay here and just try to continue to work in local news, but I also may not be able to get renewed. And then maybe another station doesn't pick me up. And now, I don't know, we're off to Memphis, nothing against Memphis. Uh, but you know, we want to be here. It's where we moved back and wanted to. So I also wanted to find something that was sustainable that I could control. So if you are going into journalism, getting back to your question, be nimble, know that it's uncertain because the media landscape is changing so rapidly, right? How people consume news is always changing and will continue to change. So what may be true today may not be true tomorrow. The more skills you have being able to write and you know report on camera and shoot your own video, the more skills you have will, will make you more valuable. But just be nimble because it's a rapidly changing industry. And we I just saw that in in so many ways in my 26 years. So I won't put you on the spot, but I, I do. I, I have to ask this question. So I'm going to figure out how to delicately articulate it. Um, I'm not a political guy. Like I speak my mind and I am wondering, like, you know, I'm looking at the last few years and let's just say there's something going on medically and people are and encouraging other people to do certain things. What if you were a TV anchor in a major city and you felt like you didn't want to, to go along with what everybody else was saying? Like, are, can you survive or do you have to bend the knee and play the game? Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting question. I think it's one, how far are you willing to go? I would say most people in that role would probably in local news would probably keep their perspectives to themselves. Um, I I think they may get called in by news management and say, listen, this is not a place for you to be sharing your opinions. Let's just report fact. And the good news management 
Because, you know, in local news, you're trying to appeal to the widest audience possible and you're trying to be fair and objective. Now, if you're at a Fox News or an MSNBC, two polar opposites of that political spectrum, you're going to be telling a much different narrative and that's going to be playing to your viewer base. And and we understand that. But I, I think, yeah, it's been a challenging time, right? Because... You know, I was at a Fox affiliate, and for most of that, it, we were owned by Tribune, which is a company that didn't have a political bent. Um, and then we were perch, purchased by Fox. And so immediately, but even before that, people were like, oh, you're Fox. You must be, you know, super right wing. Um, and that may have been the case for a few people at our station or some people, but not for others. And so, but there are assumptions based on, you know, which affiliate uh, or which which network you're aligned with. Um, and that's just the reality of the landscape. And it's something that all, you know, reporters and anchors hear about from viewers and friends. And um, and so, but, you know, I listen, once again, I'm not feeling sorry for those folks, but yeah, I think it depends on where you work and how much leverage you're you're allowed to give. Um, or are allowed to get, but I, I think in most local new, newsrooms that probably wouldn't be tolerated. Fair enough. Uh, what about like the control of your schedule? And these are assumptions I have, but you know, let's just say you have a birthday or a holiday, but you have a you have to go to work at night and be yeah. a, on TV. Like, did you ever find yourself like bumming out about not being able to you know have a hundred percent control of how you you know who you can spend time with, like your family, and leaving them on? important occasions or did you just kind of look at it like it's part of the job i looked at it like it's part of the job but um after leaving i was like wow i can't believe how much i missed and that's you know that's family occasions that is birthdays that's holidays and listen everybody can't be off and i get it and these are pretty lean staffs and uh, and so you know if some other anchor is off i couldn't be off and so you know you get thanksgiving i i'll take christmas and that's how it always worked so you're cool. working one of those holidays and you know the news is on you know sometimes they'd take off christmas morning give the morning anchors off and um but beyond that and they play some pre-produced programming but um beyond that you're working holidays and sometimes weekends and you're called in and when there's big news events it's all hands on deck and you know when there's big news events you could have you know now, I remember in Florida, I worked 21 days in a row, you know, that was covering hurricanes and it was a crisis for our community. And, and I didn't think twice of it. I just, you know, I, I wanted to work every day. I probably would have worked, you know, four months in a row um, because I was just enjoying the work so much. But but yeah, you definitely once you have kids, you reflect differently, something you don't think of when you're going into a career. But it is something that you you'll be working nights, weekends, mornings. There's very few nine to five jobs in television news um, just because the nature of when it's on. When yeah. you have to be on. And speaking of being on in a different light, and this is my last question on this is, you know, you have a really amazing energy. You're always, you're always up. I mean, I've never really seen you in a bad mood. So one of these days you'll have to say something <laughs> mean, mean to me just so I feel better about, it. but like when you're not feeling good, you know, like you have your bad days, but yet you've got to go live on television. You got to smile and you got like, how hard is it to, to be up all the time? Cause you must've had bad days a fight with your wife, whatever. I mean, is that hard to turn it on when you're supposed to turn it on? You fight with your wife? People, I, I don't, I don't, but some people do, I think. <laughs> you, uh, yeah, you know what you, you do? You learn to turn it on. And so, okay. and listen, there's something about like the red light goes on and you start 
Well, I, I we, everybody's got a different process, but I would read through every script, right? And I would read through every script because I wanted to own that content. I wanted to own that story. And I wanted it to sound like, you know, I knew what I was talking about because hopefully I knew what I was talking about. And I'd ask questions. I'm like, wait, where do we know this? I read something different this morning. Let's check on that. Hey, Simon Desk, can we make a call? Hey, producer, can we ask the writer to follow up on this? And so I was super engaged with the content. And so I'd come in feeling just like you said, because we've all felt that way we're like oh my gosh i'm dragging today uh you know you have a newborn a new puppy i've been up all night whatever it may be um but you know once i started going through the content for some reason the juices start flowing i'm like all right let's go on tv let's do this thing let's let's share what's going on in our community with our viewers and i'd get going it's times x you know 10 10x i should say now now that i'm doing events because it is real action reaction. I'm feeding off the audience. I'm doing what I love. And so now that I'm, you know, working as a benefit auctioneer, helping local nonprofits, like I get in that room and um, I'm super excited and inspired. So let's talk about that while we have some time. Um, you know, I've seen you on stage multiple times and you're brilliant. And it's, it's um, you know, the name of the game is you need to get people's energy up. Uh, we're raising money for a worthy cause. So it seems like you are in the perfect world, leveraging all your skills and interests. And oh, by the way, you're you're raising money for some amazing causes. It's like it's almost a dream job for you. Uh, and I know that I'm not one of your closest friends, but when I look at you and getting to know you, I'm like, man, this guy is perfectly matched with his career. Uh, do you feel that way? Yeah, I feel like I have found the thing that I'm supposed to be doing. Yep. And I know that's a lot of what you touch on in this podcast is this, the, the poster behind you says finding your genius zone. And I feel really lucky to find something that inspires me every day that I wake up excited to talk to these nonprofits and help them create the most meaningful programs so we can raise as much money as possible so we can lift up more people in our community every day. And yeah, I, I feel super lucky that I found it. And so I think I told you, like, was worried a little bit about the industry and my place in it, wasn't loving how news is perceived, wasn't loving that we're always looking at what divides people. And I'm like, there's so much good going on. So I uh, did an event where I emceed. So often at these benefit auctions, you'll have an MC who's kind of taking you through the program. And then you'll have an auctioneer who's auctioning off items and, and conducting the raise the paddle, which is when people hold up paddles and, and make donations to the, to the nonprofits. And I did an event with a guy and I watched him auctioneer and I was like, wow, that looks amazing to be able to be so, so involved with raising money and getting people excited and then delivering maximum impact for people, you know, our neighbors, essentially, I was like, I'm super interested. So I went to this guy and said, I think I'd be interested in becoming or learning about an auctioneer. Mind you, I'm still working full time in TV. And so, so would you be willing to show me the ropes? And he said, absolutely. And so he was, he was so gracious in doing it. So I shouted him for two years and I started Started to do auctions and we had a financial arrangement for those two years this guy's name is fred northup he's a great guy he's become a really really good friend we're incredibly close we do events together now which is super fun and so um and he just showed me everything i needed to know and so um then i became i became licensed became insured as an auctioneer and started working with nonprofits. Talk to another guy named David Silverman, who's been doing it for like 30 plus years in Seattle. Uh, he's done a ton of big auctions in town like Fred does and uh, and, and hopefully like I do now. And uh, and I, I sat down with him. I was like, I'm thinking about starting a business and becoming an auctioneer. What do I need to know? 
and and he could just kind of went through everything just opened up his playbook which was incredibly kind of him and the funniest thing he said was he goes matt just know this about your first auction auction that you're going to conduct it's kind of it's going to kind of feel like the first time you have sex it's going to be all over the place but you're going to get through it and quick and so my my response was were you there the first time i had sex oh <laughs> yeah. he's talking hypothetically you're so, who by the way, who, what was the what was the event? Do you remember the first auction you did? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was Special Olympics Washington, which is a client to this day, right? And and uh, you know because of my son, I'm aligned and and so, you know believe so deeply in their mission. Um, and clearly, I had a lot to learn on stage, and you learn it by doing it. It's the only way you can learn this skill. Um, but but he wasn't far off. And then you know that first year, so, so I started it seven years ago. And I, and I just, it grew every year. And then I was planning on leaving because I got so busy doing events and I was loving the work so much and felt, felt so inspired to do more of it and just really lean in. And I was ready to pivot out in 2020. What happened in 2020? Yeah, a lot happened. Yeah, the world shut down. People couldn't gather for these events. Now we quickly pivoted to virtual events. So they ended up being like those old school telethons. And so we do them live and um, and it was really fun and it, it was a placeholder, but then people missed being back in the room. So, you know, after five years of, of ramping it, I got so busy, I could no longer do both and see my family. I was working two full-time jobs. So my side hustle became my passion and my purpose. And it became my full-time job. And I went to the station. I said, you know what? This has been amazing. Thank you for being such an amazing employer. I've loved my 10 years here, but I'm going to resign. And so I stepped down and I leaned into being a benefit auctioneer full-time. And it's been incredible. I'll do 80 events here just locally. So those are 80 fundraisers for nonprofits that are improving our community and people it, and, and, and for the lives of people in it. And I, I got to tell you, every day I pinch myself, I'm so lucky to do it. Yeah, man, you're so good at it. Um, I'm curious. So when I watch you, it feels so easy. Like I, 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 it just feels like you know a great athlete just doing his thing or her thing. But I am curious. You said it took a while to learn it. Like, what was hard? What was the hardest part about it? Like the things that we don't see when we're drinking our wine and eating our steaks, <laughs> watching you do your thing. Like, what was it that took you a while to get good at? Well, the first thing I had to learn was like how to consult nonprofits so that we make as much money as we can before we even enter the room. So most of the great decisions, most of the work is done before anybody ever enters the room. We don't just show up, the good ones anyway, don't just show up and auction off items. I, I have a script. I learned, once again, I learned this all from, from a really amazing mentor in Fred Northup Jr. So we have a script that really takes everybody through the program in a meaningful way. And, and what I loved about TV news was storytelling. And that's what these events do. You have to tell a great story. And all these organizations, all these nonprofits have amazing stories to share about how they have lifted up people in our community. It's pulling out those stories and figuring out how are we going to tell that during the course of a two and a half or two hour event, three hour event in the most meaningful way so that people understand what we do and so that they're more compelled to support what we do financially. And that's success for these organizations. So it really is like saying, okay, let's talk about what we've been doing. How do we tell that story? And it all comes to, down to storytelling. So then when we show up, now we can just enjoy the night and be great and execute. So a lot of it is 
is in the preparation. And you've been interviewing. I've been so impressed with the stable of experts, professionals at the top of their game in music and film and technology and coaching and life coaching that you've brought in on this po podcast. You know, it's the same thing. It's like when I go up there, it's it's showtime. And then beyond that, you've got to bring tremendous energy, engagement, and fun, right? Because if people are having fun, they're going to spend more money. I kind of say it like this. When you go out to dinner with a bunch of friends and somebody's like, let's get another bottle of wine. And you're like, mm, well, I got early morning. Do we really need another bottle of wine? And you're like, okay. And you wake up the next morning and you're like, you know what? We didn't really need that bottle of wine, but man, that was fun last night. I want people leaving my auctions to feel like that. Like I didn't need to spend that additional $5,000, but man, that was fun last night. And I feel really good about making a difference for that, not for that organization and for the people supported by that organization. Yeah, for sure. I have to ask, like you always have these targets, right? You want to hit. And I'm, I'm trying to think, is there ever a bad auction? Like, I mean, are there ever times where you don't hit your limit or do you always hit your limit? You mean your goal for the organization? Yeah, 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 yeah. And there are times when you won't get there. I mean, thankfully, you know, my events, most of the time we're, we're, we're and especially coming out of COVID, like, um, you know, market conditions were such that people have been cooped up. And the economy was humming during COVID. And then we came back and it was just like this explosion of generosity, which was so amazing to see. But yeah, I mean, we're usually my clients, we blow away their goals, which feels really good. You know, sometimes they do these big stretch goals and you may not get there, but um, that's all part of the strategy, right? And it's um, and it feels good when you collectively come together and say, wow, we did something really special tonight, which will enable this important work to not only continue, but to grow. And the the goal is, it's not about money, it's about impact, right? And so it's about growing these organizations so that we can support more people with whatever they're facing. You know, as I mentioned, I'll do 80 events this year and that that's like crosses the gamut. Those are organizations that support people with disabilities, which is super important to me because of my son. And I understand the family dynamics and the toll that that takes on a family. So I have a lot of organizations that support adults and kids with disabilities, but it's also like organizations that support people facing Parkinson's and cancer, Seattle Children's Hospital. I do a ton of events for Seattle Children's Hospital, including one that we just raised almost $14 million thanks to the Friends of Costco Guild and what they do is truly amazing. So I get, and some organizations, you know, find, I do a horse rescue and I do the first no kill shelter uh, so we can save the lives of more adoptable dogs and, and cats. And so I just feel super lucky to be involved in such important work and be trusted with these events. These organizations have a ton on the line, Dirk. They do like they invest so much time and effort and they trust me to carry their program and to deliver financial success. And I just feel super, super lucky to be doing it. Yeah, I you look happy when you're doing it, but you also look like a, a rock star up there. I have to ask just tactfully, like 80 a year, so if someone's listening, they're watching, they're like, God, I really think I could be good at this. Is, is one of those events require like five days of prep, two days of prep, a week of prep? Like you got to understand their cause, their mission statement. Then you probably get intimate with some of the things they're offering at the auction. Is there an average time um, that you need to dedicate to an auction? Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's about typically about 10 hours of meetings and script work and consultation before we enter the room per event. 
And then the events usually are like six to seven hours. By the time you show up, you do a run through, you know, you, you, you go through the show and we do a dry run typically, and then you conduct the event and then, you know, stick around and hopefully celebrate what you just accomplished with, with those who, who took part. So, yeah, it, you know, so it's usually about 16, 18 hours per event. Um, and so, yeah, you find the time and, um, I'm super fortunate to be doing it. It still feels like I have more bandwidth because I was working full two full-time jobs, you know, starting a side hustle that became, you know, just as busy. So I was doing like some hundred hour weeks. And so if you've had jobs, you know, in technology, I know that you were grinding like crazy. You work those hundred hour weeks because you believe in what you're doing. And, and, and um, you know, for me, it was, okay, I see this thing growing, this side hustle, could actually become my full-time job. I love it. I can't believe I'm able to do this and and make it work for myself and my family. You know, let's go. It was was my approach to it. it. I love Um, it. And and incredibly rewarding as it started to come together. But it was a ramp. Like first year, you know, 15 to 20 events, next year 25, and then it just grew from there. And I don't want to get personal about compensation, but the nature of being an auctioneer is your compensation reflected of reflective of how successful you are during the night in terms of what you raise, or are there typically flat fees or is compensation all over the board? People do it differently. I will say I believe in a flat fee for this reason is that this small organization, I have organizations that make $60,000 all the way up to almost 14 million and everything in between. But the organization that's making $60,000, that could be their operating budget to do what they do. And they need your help just as much as that organization that's bringing in $14 million. And so why would you not want to take that if you're doing a percentage, just like you take, you know, the big events. And so um, I believe in a flat fee. So, so that's how it's worked for me. I'm not passing judgment on how anybody else does business because this is a personal thing. And most of us are individual contractors, right? And um, we're, we're back to that. Remember I said, when I carried my own camera, they called it a one-man band. I feel like I've gone full circle. I'm, I'm, and actually during COVID, I was shooting videos and setting up my own video and, you know, putting on a lavalier microphone and editing my own stuff because it's how we were reaching donors and everything moved online and i was like man i told my body was a main anchor in dc we worked together in two different markets including baltimore i told him i was like i'm back to one man banding i'm back to quincy illinois baby and it feels good uh i'm glad i had that skill set but yeah it's funny how some things go full circle but good question about kind of the business aspect of it do whatever works for you, but but I feel very comfortable, and I think it's the ethical approach for me to charge a flat fee. So I'm going to wind this down. Um, I ask questions that I ask all my guests, and but you know you have a dual dual uh, career, um, not currently, but you have. So if you were to give just a quick piece of advice for someone that is looking at becoming into the TV anchor world or becoming uh, an auctioneer, is there something that, and you might have already done it, but as we end it, is there a piece of advice you'd give to one, or you can do both if you like, but just something you can leave the audience with? Yeah, I I think whatever your career may be, if you can find this intersection of what you love to do and the thing that you do that people respond, they're like, wow, you're amazing at that. Then you'll be successful and you'll love your work. And the success will come, the money will come, 
I think, listen, that's a piece of it. So try to forecast with your industry. You know, if you can find a growth industry, you'll probably be better off. And that's just the reality of it. But I do think if you're able to find that intersection of your genius zone where people are like, wow, how do you do that like you do? And the thing you enjoy the success will come and then you'll feel like you never have to work because you, you get to go and have a great time every day. Um, and, and it feels less like work. You're not punching a time card. I love it. If you weren't, let's just say you take auctioneer off the table and TV hosts and they just, God said, you can't do this anymore. Is there a dream job? Like, like, I mean, is there something that when you go to bed at night, like if I could do anything, you know, whether it's like being a baseball player or whatever, is there something that, uh, about you and your and like you think about that you would love to do who wouldn't want to be a rock star right but I have zero musical talent so living in the real world you know what I, I think I'd love to teach and coach I just think you know being able to shape young lives I saw the joy that the, my, my mom got from being a teacher and uh, I think there's something really special in that so I think if I didn't pick this career field uh, and I've been super lucky to do what I do and have been su pretty successful at it that that I would have gone that path. And and who knows, I think I would have been pretty fulfilled doing it. What about you? Where do you think you would have ended up uh, if you could do a do over? And it's, it, you know, it kind of makes for a fun conversation. What do you think you'd end up doing? I. I would have gotten into if I didn't know, like trying to be real, realistic, if I I would have gotten into a sales role that had a recurring revenue stream, a book of business that I could actually build something and, and every year you'd maintain it. I would have bought in real estate every year. I have a friend of mine that has like 200 doors. Uh, I would have bought a lot of real estate just every year, maybe one or two homes, maybe a fourplex. And I've always, I guess the safe, that's, those are safe answers. I love music and mm -hmm. I love music scores. And so if you looked at a couple of my podcasts, I interviewed uh, Matteo Messina and Hummy Man who are very, uh, famous music film score producers. And I think in the perfect world, I love people like you. I mean, I love hanging out with my friends and going to the Husky games and, you know, tailgates. And, but I love being by myself. Like I farm a lot. I'm on my property, you know, and I love the idea of sitting in an office, creating music, um, non-lyrical uh, and, you know, giving it to the movie producers and then going hanging out with my kids or my wife. Um, I'm kind of an introvert, a social introvert. So I think something that gave me the creative um, abilities around music, I think that would have been something that would make me pretty happy. I think that's really interesting what, what you brought up, because I do think good advice for people is ask yourself, how do I recharge when I need to recharge? And some people like to work on the farm, like to be alone and read a book, that they like to be by themselves to recharge, or do you like to go out with friends and be social and that may help you also decide what you're best suited to do in a career. Yeah. I mean, people, when I say, I think I'm an introvert, they, they laugh, but that's how I recharge. Like I can hang with people and I can do that thing, but I, I get my battery charges when I'm by myself and, or I'm with my kids throwing the football or whatever. But yeah. um, anyway, I, you know, I have a lot of interest. There's a lot of things I've done in my life that I'm proud of. Uh, I, I would like to make a bigger impact on the community like you do. I, I think that's one thing I really look up to you about. Like at the end of the day, you're changing lives, many lives, and you're changing lives to groups that really, really need it. And I think when you 
define success, authentic success, I don't think there's a better definition than what you're doing. Um, so I'm proud of you and I hope you're proud of yourself because you're really doing an amazing job. Uh, that means the world to me coming from you. I'm, I'm super fortunate to do it. As you know, I just love this place. And so um, it does feel good to be able to do something for a living that enables you to have a positive impact. Um, it just so happens that it, it aligns, you know, with my skill set, my interests. So I, I do feel very fortunate um, that I'm able to do it. And dude, kudos to you because you're helping people beyond what you know. Like I always said, like I wish I could interview and ask all these questions about people in different fields. And you're doing that for folks if they want to tune in. They're interested in this field or that industry. And then, you know, you're going to the leaders in those fields and and really unpacking it for people. So we have some insights that could help people make really good career decisions. I will say Malcolm Gladwell, amazing author. He said, most people who are super fulfilled and super successful in their careers end up doing more than one thing. And so like my current career is the product of a side hustle. I encourage anyone to do what you're doing, Dirk, with this podcast, writing a book to just dip your toe in, try it. We always, and somebody asked him like, oh, you just took on a podcast network, Malcolm Gladwell. How do you have time to do that? And he goes, you know, we all have more time in our days than we think we do. Like you don't need to watch that show every night. You could apply yourself in different ways. Find the time, try it out. Who knows? It may lead to your second career. By the way, you should do a podcast and I'll help you set it up. Like, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm in a friggin' barn, you know? Uh, yeah, tell, about, tell me about this background because it, uh, it kind of, I know you live on a farm. You, you're, you're open about that and it looks like a barn. So you're in your barn. I'm in downstairs because we live on the second floor of the barn, but like this thing here I built and I painted, it was really cool. I, I put like 30 coats. It's just some cedar. And I, I had a vision of the color. Uh, and then I brought it in an office downstairs in our barn. But um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty cool, but I, I just think that's something that you could do. I mean, you could do that from your home. Um, you could interview, you know, you could make it all about nonprofit or whatever, but if you ever want to go down that road, I'd be happy to, share with you my experience. It's not difficult to do. What do you love most about it? Um, I love people and you like telling stories. I like hearing stories. And I think that um, when I'm done with a podcast, you know, I'll just sit and there are things that I'll, I'll remember about what you said or whatever. And I just like to see people got light up, especially about what they do and that joy and that love when people are really into what they do. I, I love that energy. And that's really what I'm trying to spread. So I like talking to people. I like having conversations. I'm kind of a smart ass. So this isn't a podcast that allows me to be, you know, fully me because, um, you know, I'm, my mind kind of goes in crazy directions, but you know, I, I enjoy this, but maybe I'll, I'll start a second podcast where I can be a little more me. Or be snarky. We'll take maybe. you as you are. It'll make yeah. people giggle. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. I'm trying to take this to colleges and universities. So part of me is like, okay, I got to play the game a little bit and make sure I don't, you know, oh, yeah. it's, it's a world that's getting offended quite often. So I got to think about those things. But anyway, I just hope to make people think differently about their life. Cause I see people like you and I see, I have friends that hate their jobs and I'm like, you know what? That sucks. You know, there's so much time you spend going to work. And if you don't like what you're doing, you know, I think that's really sad. And so when I see people like you and their zone of genius, 
uh, I want other people to take note and, and pay attention. And not everyone's going to be an auctioneer or TV anchor, but you know, we're all brought in, in this world uniquely. We all have our own yeah. skill sets, interests, you know, I just know like when I'm a better version of myself around my kids or my wife, it's usually doing something that gives me energy. Um, and so I think it's worthy to pay attention to those things. So. Yeah. And listen, we've got the luxury to do it, right. That we've been able to, you know, I understand if you're, if you're a single mom, a single parent and you're grinding that you may not even have the bandwidth to say, what else can I do? So in some ways, you know, we're pretty fortunate to be able to, to explore other opportunities, you doing what you're doing with this awesome podcast. And, and yeah, I'm back at you, my friend, I'm really proud of you as well. Thanks, Matt. Hey, anything else before we end this? Thanks for, for hanging out. This was fun. Tell your darling wife. I say hi. I will, Matt. Thanks so much, man. All right, buddy. Thanks. Have a, have a good day. You too.